0: Breaking news, everybody. Big news. There's no nipples on that almond. (laughs) It's episode number 260 of The Way I Heard It, and yep, that's the title. And Chuck, I went with this title because after uh, a lot of research and eating a lot of almonds, uh, I've never Mm -hmm. seen a nipple, and I'm pretty sure they just don't exist at this point. On almonds, that is.
1: I thought your research was going to conclude that titles with the word nipple in them do better than titles without the word nipple.
0: Well, we'll see. So. In the last 260 episodes, I'm fairly sure that nipple hasn't wormed its way out of the lexicon and into any of our titles thus far. But
1: Totally nipple-free thus far.
0: We've been nipple-free on the way I heard it, but now the nipples are out in force, my friends, and you could cut glass with them. But you won't find one on an <laughs> almond. I stress this because you can't get milk from an almond, and yet almond milk is a thing. It's a thing. They sell it. Somehow or other, milk has become the back half of a lot of hyphenated words. Almond is just one example of a thing you can't get milk from, but is nevertheless being sold as milk. Why do we care about this? Because our guests today are two of my favorite farmers in the whole wide world, Mike and Sue McCloskey, who I've known for years now. met him on Dirty Jobs early back in the day. They own a modest little dairy farm up in Northwest Indiana.
1: <laughs> <laughs> modest little dairy farm. For- yeah. It's one
0: of the biggest dairy farms in the country at this point, And they are on the cutting edge of a great many things. All kinds of science, all kinds of technology, all kinds of environmental breakthroughs that are allowing people to plant crops without actually tilling. They have 42 18-wheelers in their fleet of trucks that deliver their delicious milk, real milk, from actual cows all over the country. And those trucks are remarkable because they run on cow crap. Cow crap? Yep. Bio, diesel, their entire operation is basically powered by the poop from their cows. A lot of people are doing this on a smaller scale, Chuck, but I've never seen it done at this level before. Look, a big part of microworks uh, has been agriculture. A big part of dirty jobs has been modern agriculture. Farmers, in my estimation, are the last great generalists among us. They have to be really good at a whole lot of different things. And Mike and Sue are really good at a lot. Mike, in particular, he's a scientist. He's a veterinarian. He's a generalist. He's a fixer. He's a visionary. And I wanted these two on because I wanted to hear from farmers About the environment, about the climate, about this crazy world we're living in where almonds and milk can show up, not just in the same sentence, but in the same word. He's got a lot of thoughts on that as well. Their uh, company, Fairlife, makes unbelievably delicious milk. The kind of milk you used to get straight from the cow in a cold jar brought to your porch it tastes great. It's high, high protein, low in sugar. And it's such a huge hit. I think Coca Cola bought them a couple That's years correct. ago. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, this is a fascinating conversation because it's a success story, uniquely American, utterly agricultural. But also, something comes up in our conversation that I didn't think we were going to talk about, but I'm really glad we did. There was a controversy. Uh, over at Fair Oaks a couple of years ago in June of uh, 2019. And it was the kind of controversy that could have cost them their entire business because animal rights activists got onto the farm and surreptitiously filmed some farm workers mishandling some animals. Abusing. Yeah. I mean, it's just call it what it is. It was hard for me to watch. It was hard for, I think, anyone to watch, but it was devastating for Mike and Sue to watch because these two love their animals. They take their animal welfare very, very seriously. All of the employees at Fair Oaks need to sign essentially a pledge vowing to report any kind of abuse. They have all sorts of systems in place, but they're a big operation and of their many, many employees, four or five of them turned out to be bad actors and they were caught, and the footage got out there. And what Mike did in response, I thought, was kind of brilliant. We wind up not only talking about it, but talking about it in detail. Because these two farmers put together what I think was a master class in crisis management. They handled right. the situation. They got it behind yep. them. And I think there's a lot to be learned from it. I mean, were you surprised by some of what you heard?
1: yeah, I was. I mean, I saw the video that Mike did right in the wake, on the heels of it less than twenty four hours later, and uh, he took full responsibility for everything and said, You know, geez, we didn't think we needed to have you know, cameras watching our employees. We felt like we could trust them more, and and apparently we couldn't. So that's all changing.
0: It's a very instructive lesson on a whole lot of different levels, but in the end, it's a story that very nearly killed the business that wound up making it much stronger. So we talk about that, and we talk about some breakthroughs in modern agriculture, and you're gonna love them. They're the real deal. Mike and Sue, they made a better glass of milk, a better bottle of milk, and confirmed something that I've long suspected, which you may have heard, too. There's no nipples on that almond. Oh my goodness. As I live and breathe.
2: Hey, please tell me I'm not going to be drinking alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have my Brick House Nutrition container that's oh. supposed to be full of some sort of healthy green thing, but I'd be happy to put some noble Tennessee whiskey in there instead.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> so disappointing. Hey, guys. It's hey, Mike.
0: You. Hey, Mike. How are you? Fantastic.
2: Thank God we have Gus here, because uh, we would have been completely lost.
0: <laughs> Thank God for Gus. Is he still playing the guitar?
2: Gus is still playing the guitar. In fact, Gus just wrote, you know, Jack got married uh, two weekends ago, and Gus wrote the most beautiful uh, father-daughter dance song.
3: He tore it up, Mike. Did he really? Oh, yeah. he tore it up. It was... It's an amazing song. It really is something. Everyone just was... Uh
0: in tears and in laughter and in joy. It was just something, something to see. Well, I love it. If he's still around when we wrap this up and there's a guitar handy, bring it in here and play a few bars. As long as it's an original. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know it's original. (laughs) When we wrap this up, we're going to close with uh, your song.
2: Okay.
0: To bring a guitar (laughs) in there. (laughs) No pressure, Gus, but, you know, 3 million people listen to this thing, so I'm just saying. Could be one of those opportunities. (laughs) You never know.
4: You guys can
2: negotiate the pay on that. All right, okay. Oh, my God, now Gus needs an agent? (laughs) (laughs) Tell him to call Mary. Uh, There you go. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that.
0: Sue, I have to compliment you on your... uh, sartorial splendor that really does look like every country picnic tablecloth I've ever seen turned into a really beautiful shirt. (laughs)
2: Thank you, Mike.
0: (laughs) All right. First things first, I miss you both terribly with the white hot intensity of a thousand suns. Is there any chance you're going to be in Texas in a couple of weeks for the big FFA thing? No, no, no. We weren't planning on that. No, it didn't it didn't um, work out this year. I'm there. I'm impersonating a keynote speaker at the big FFA. Oh, okay. in- great. Yes. great, great, right.
3: So, yeah. I remember when you did that in Indianapolis. Yes. Was it Indianapolis where you did it? Well yes. I did. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, that was two thousand
0: eight, maybe even two thousand six. When did we meet? Was it two thousand six?
3: Yeah, I think it was right after you did that is when we met. If I wanna say that uh what is uh Our friend from the chicken industry. Chad. Chad set that up with you at the FFA, or he was at the FFA and met you there. And I don't know if we had met before or not. I can't remember what came first, but they were very close to each
0: other. The chicken or the egg. Chuck, what was happening back then basically was Dirty Jobs was just kind of getting started.
2: Yeah, I think it was your third or fourth season of Dirty Jobs. Because I I know you were out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It had been on long enough for you guys to have seen it and for your kids to have liked it and for you to. Oh, all right, let's get it straight. For Sue to
3: sit there Saturdays all day long watching Dirty Jobs. And then everyone else had to sit with her and watch. It was so,
2: Troy and I who. Yeah, like, Troy and you are the ones we, that really. We found really it and then we just started. Yeah, w- we went just went back we, on we all the seasons. Yeah. And-
1: so you yeah. helped program the early years. <laughs> yeah. We set they the did. bar <laughs> for wow. all the shows afterwards. <laughs> uh, I believe that, but that was all, we
0: set the bar off camera. <laughs> yes. They set the bar. Oh, believe off, me, off a camera, literal off bar. Camera. I believe probably yeah,
3: a literal bar off camera. That's yeah. what we're well,
0: if I didn't mention this in the intro, or even if I did, I'll repeat it. This was a precarious time for Dirty Jobs because even though the show was a hit, farmers were having a difficult time inviting a show called Dirty Jobs, you know, a crew with cameras on a farm is not a thing that most farmers relish. But the show had been on long enough for Sue to form a favorable opinion of me and our show. And so too did Chad Gregory, a guy that was in the chicken part of the business. So in that same year, Dirty Jobs got a chance to visit two really incredible operations. And the feedback on those shows was great. And the FFA saw it. And then they invited me into their world. And I began to get a much better understanding of just, first of all, how disconnected so many people are from their food. Mm-hmm. And secondly, how misunderstood and how difficult it is to be a farmer in the 21st century. And so, Dirty jobs at that point, suddenly the floodgates opened and we were on farms all over the place. But Mike, honestly, I don't even know how much of this you remember, but the night I met you, one of the first things you did was you handed me a scalpel and let me assist in a cesarean section on one of your cows. I mean, people should know you're a doctor, you're a veterinarian, but that level of trust with cameras around was one of the most amazing things that I'd ever seen, and to this day, people ask me about it, so thanks.
3: No, that was a great experience, Mike. I still remember when, when our veterinarian, we had asked him to do the C-section, and you and I were standing there, and he said, you know, I, I'm just, I'm not gonna do a C-section on camera, I don't dare. And I'm just not gonna do it. And I said, okay, well, then I'll do it. And you turned to me and said, well, do you know how?
0: <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know you were a vet. You didn't know at that time that I have never
3: introduced myself as a vet. So you said, do you know how? I said, I think so. I
0: I was still trying to get up to speed with the fact that you both were like, wait a second. You guys aren't staying in town. You're staying here at the house. (laughs) This is a crew with like seven people in it. Like, oh, no, 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 no. You'll stay with us, you'll stay in the house, you'll go do the C-section, then you'll deliver a cow. It, like you had this whole thing. I just thought this is a such a weird mix of hospitality <laughs> and enthusiasm. It opened the door for many more visits to your farm. It had a huge impact on me and our show. And so that's what I wanted to do today for an hour or so, is just really talk to you both about what's new in the wide world of agriculture, what's happened to your farm. It was never a small farm, but it was not what it is today. You guys are like the freaking Disneyland of agriculture, Sue. How in the world did that happen?
2: You know, just like everything, it doesn't happen overnight. It was a long time building. When Mike and I met in California, Mike was a dairy vet, I was an art student, who got drafted into the world of dairy and just fell in love with it. And we ran Mike's vet practice for a while in California and then decided that we kind of wanted to practice what we were preaching. And so sold the practice, kind of sold everything, moved out to New Mexico. And that's where we started our, our first dairy in partnership with some great friends. And because... I didn't come from an agricultural background. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of New York City and New Jersey. Um, Mike had a little bit more of an agricultural background, but it was very interesting to me when you would talk to other people where we were living, and you know, people wanted to know, my God, that's a big farm you got, and that's a lot of animals you got, and how do you take care of all of them? And so you start talking to people, you start... Inviting people out, you start having your kids' kindergarten class come out. And that was the an evolution. And that's, by the way, that's no different than any other farmer in the country does. I mean, they, they host a, a church group or a rotary club. But we, when we had the opportunity, when we moved up to Indiana and we knew we were, we had 40, 60,000 cars passing us every day on the major highway we thought okay we're 70 miles outside of chicago we're you know 80 miles north of indianapolis within a, a radius of a few hundred miles there's a significant population 42 million <laughs> and we had an opportunity that we could open the gates and you know let a lot more people in and have those conversations about what it took to feed our neighbors our families our you know, our town, our country, our, the world. You know, what does it take today to really sustainably produce food for the rest of us so that you guys can sit there and podcast? <laughs> so <laughs> And you don't have to go out and forage every morning for your breakfast.
1: That is something that's good to have off the list of things to do, <laughs> foraging for food.
0: It's also Dirty Jobs 101, right? We were just trying to early on make the point that one and a half percent of the country are feeding 330 million people three times a day and a good bit of the world as well. And the fact that most people aren't properly gobsmacked by that was something that always troubled me. But the question to you, Mike, is why you? I mean, there are plenty of farmers out there who just put their head down and try and build their business and don't even wander into this minefield of media and PR and cameras you always seemed interested in in making a case for the farmer while at the same time building one hell of a farm and i'm just wondering when did it occur to you that that was going to be part of the uh the mission
3: i feel that disconnect you know it's been around since the eighties and probably seventies, we started our first farms in the mid eighties. So to know that, you know, back then two or 3% of the population was feeding everyone and to start hearing stories that weren't true about what we were doing really woke up in me the desire to communicate. I could see the need even back then that as we continued to evolve, there were people that are against what we did and they would use those weapons to be able to discredit us. So understanding that, uh, I thought it was very important that we start sharing the real story. And I do have a science background through my veterinarian career, and I and I'm a big believer in science. So I felt that it was important to do it, you know, from a science 101 basic way of communicating the truth, the transparency, and the concept of constant improvement to me was incredibly important. One of the areas that I've always believed in is if we cannot justify our practices in the public arena, if we can't explain them properly, then we better consider changing our practices. And you need to test that. You need to go out there and really, you know, because... you. Unfortunately, in the farming community and other professions or businesses, you end up speaking a lot to yourselves. Mm -hmm. And that conversation becomes very circular. And it's a non-challenge conversation. I felt, you know, early on, very early on, I saw the importance that we were up against, you know, a challenge coming down. You know, when you're so few people that truly understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, And there's so many out there that they may be a minority, but they're a very loud minority that are against what you're doing for various reasons. We could go through all those reasons, but.
0: Well, let's not go through all of them, but let's touch on a couple, right? I mean, it just seems like such a self-defeating thing to be so firmly opposed to the people who make our food, grow our food, deliver our food. I said this to you years ago, but you're surrounded by an army of angry acronyms. There's the EPA and there's OSHA and there's PETA and there's HSUS and a lot of well-intended organizations that when you put them all together, I don't think most people truly understand the hoops that you guys have to jump through. But I'm curious to hear from you. What are the big impediments that most often surprise the average Joe who, like me, is addicted to chewing and swallowing things? You know, I think
3: um, that the different style of diets is probably the one that I would bring up first. And, you know, I obviously have nothing against a vegan diet. I think there's people that physically may feel better on a vegan diet, or at least believe they do. And therefore, you know, I'm all for that. The issue is that, for them, it becomes, if I may use this word, a religion, against anyone who doesn't believe in what they believe in. And therefore, they go out of their way to create stories that are just not real, and there's very little truth to them, to be able to get their point across. So it becomes you know, a true battle of uh, creating stories because they know that there is no exposure. Mm -hmm. And people will believe anything if it sounds kind of logical and you can make up a lot of logical stories if you're left alone. (laughs) So the lack of that challenge is what I saw initially as something that, you know, we need to be aware of. And we need to start getting our story out there to make sure that these type of people don't, you know, don't achieve their goal. If it was up to them, they truly would like to see every animal protein that's being produced wiped out. So then you get these other groups you mentioned that get incredible support, financial support from a very few. And then they have influence actually on governmental groups that are making decisions. And so unless we really get out of our, our own shell and open up our doors and be totally transparent. And understand, again, I think it's very important that if we as farmers in front of the public arena in an open, honest discussion, can't convince people that our practices are for these reasons, we have to reconsider how do we adapt our practices to be able to continue doing what we do. I've found it because we have hundreds of thousands of people every year visit our farms, I'm not afraid of that. I believe that we can explain our practices and the majority of reasonable people understand them very well and are grateful for them. Grateful for the care to the animals, grateful for the care to the environment and grateful for the nutrition that we produce every day and the hard work that it takes to do it. So I think it's been a very successful venture for many, many dairy farmers and other animal producer farmers to. You know take on this challenge and it's you know more and more every day mike thanks to i think the efforts that, that sue and i did initially and other farmers that followed our practices of opening up and and
0: understand that we've got to get out there and tell our story and to do that sue you've got to assume risk right i mean there's risk in everything nobody ever built the kind of business you guys have today but the challenges are one thing, but what are the real risks, Sue, that come (laughs) with this kind of growth? I mean, you basically launched a new brand, Fairlife, right? Bought by Coke. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you did it. You actually made a better milk and you knocked it out of the park. You did it. So, I mean, where does the risk lie now?
2: The risk is your, is your reputation. That's the biggest thing that, um, and, you know, and we had, we had an incident a few years ago that was incredibly hurtful to Fair Oaks Farms, uh, and even to Fair Life, uh, where we had some abuse that was captured on video mm-hmm. on one of our farms. And what we did was, you know, Mike did, uh, if you haven't seen it, Mike did an incredible video explaining and and apologizing and, and really taking ownership of what happened
0: within 24 hours.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) No, I remember. Um, No, no. Look, just to help the listeners who might not be up to speed. This was in June of 19, right? 2019. I saw the press. I called you immediately and you weren't around. Apparently, you were busy taking other calls. But by the time we spoke. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> by the time we spoke, a couple days later, I said, look, Sue, I can't imagine what you and Mike are feeling because I know that footage would probably made you as sick as could be. But I said, look, I've already started to write something for Facebook. I'd like to say a few things about my experience on the farm. And you said, don't. Don't get near this. Don't touch this. This has the potential to end us and it could end you. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but you guys came face to face with what could have been the end of the whole thing. That had to be an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult day, week, month, year. I mean,
2: yeah, uh, it was. And first of all, you know, we thanked you for. For your very very generous offer, but again, you know, we realized how divided and divisive, and how much, uh, you know, how much anger was out there. We just appreciated support. That was the best thing sure. because we needed to own it, which we did. There were an incredible amount of people who supported us through that time. A lot of, it was a lot of CEOs in, within the industry you know, came to Mike and gave them their moral support. But it was interesting because as hurt as we were, as hurt as our family was, what got us through that was what gets you through any crisis, right? The first thing, it's like like being in a car accident. The first thing you do is you look around at all the people you care about and you say, are you okay? And that was our family. That was the workers at the farm. That was everybody involved with Fair Oaks Farms. Are you guys okay? And from there, then we started to, you know, implement all of, just all of the same values that we've always had. Mm -hmm. Okay, like, how do we make this better? This happened. It's ours. It happened on our watch. But how do we stop this from ever happening again? And not only just to us, but to to anybody in the industry. And it was through that time that it was a good couple of years that it really took to get people's trust back. It was answering phone calls. It was, you know, writing back emails. It was just being as honest as we could with anybody who cared, whether it meant sitting on a phone call with somebody describing the ways that they wanted to, you know, take care of your children for you, uh, or whether it was someone who was genuinely interested in knowing, well, what are you gonna do about it? That was what got us through, was actually really connecting with people, being transparent about it, and then strategizing, how do we move forward out of this with making the industry better.
0: Yeah.
3: I think, Mike, that I was very proud of everyone close to us at the moment. I think our response was truly a natural response of who we are. The first thing that we immediately did was take full responsibility. I mean, those animals did suffer, without a doubt. That uh, truly just broke our heart to see those animals suffer that way. And it happened, as Sue said, under our watch. How exactly did it happen, like I shared before, and I continue to share with anyone who asks. it doesn't matter. I'm not ever going to get into that because there's a lot of things that happen when you are big and you put a target on your back and you represent an industry that people that don't want you to succeed, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that it happened. And it proved to us that we needed a lot better training, a lot better
0: education, a lot better monitoring, and a lot better surveillance. I want to come back to the surveillance in a second, but I want to tell you, too, that I watched the video you put out the next day, and I immediately breathed a huge sigh of relief. I don't have a crystal ball, but I knew that you guys were going to be okay because, Mike, I'm not just blowing sunshine. That was a masterful Six and a half minutes of owning responsibility, not making a single excuse, putting forth a series of protocols that you had resisted prior to that. You didn't want to put cameras any more than a cop wants a, you know, a body camera. It goes to trust between employer and employee. And I know you guys didn't want that, but the footage was undeniable. Your response was not only blazingly fast. It was humble, and it was real, and it was authentic. And I thought, you know what? There's so much reasonableness and humanity in this, and transparency. You guys are going to be fine. The world's going to have to spin, because the footage is what it is. And isn't it ironic, going all the way back to the day we met, really the very first thing we did was conduct a cesarean on international television, (laughs) On camera, when your own vet wouldn't even do it, we did it. And the trust and the friendship that came from that in some weird way, I think, informs what we're talking about now, because it doesn't matter what's in your heart, right? Your employees, I've seen what they have to sign. It's a document pledging to report any kind of abuse. You employ thousands of people, but to your point, none of that matters. And you immediately said, that's it. We're putting in cameras, never on our watch again. So smart move, good move. I don't know if there was some PR whisperer in your ear, but if you followed your gut, man, that was a good thing to follow.
2: You know, that's such an interesting comment because, yes, uh, you bring in the PR people, like you Hmm. know. And the initial suggestions were kind of like, Don't make that video.
3: Yeah, it was Sue and Jackie and Gus and myself. And I kicked everyone out of the room. And I said, I know what we're going to do. And I had a chance to bounce it off, off them and said, hey, this is what is the reality. You know, the support was overwhelming within our group. So there was no doubt that that's why I say it was truly natural. It was truly who we were, right? We've always believed in honesty and transparency and that's what the people deserved after watching that video, honesty and transparency. And like you said, I mean, not only taking full responsibility, but how are we going to fix this? What are we going to do to make sure it never happens again? Our animals deserve our protection and that's our responsibility. And that's what we believed in all our life. And we had built a trust amongst our employees and we believed that that existed. But you know, unfortunately, when you get hundreds and hundreds of employees and and that gets diluted down and you have to put in other systems to make sure that
1: that never happens. So. Right. And the employees in that video were terminated immediately, right? Yes. Matter of fact,
3: there were three and two were terminated before that video ever came out because we had suspected that some of this was going on. Uh, Hmm. The people taking the video had been on our property for over six months. And, uh, They found that one area of the farm where those employees were our weak link, right, in that area. So, yeah, but two of those individuals were gone about uh, two months before the video ever came out, before we even knew that they were on that video.
1: Hmm.
0: Here's a question I didn't think I would ask, but now that the earth has had a chance to spin for a bit, do you think it was for the best that it happened And to be clear, we're talking about people who infiltrated your farm, trespassed, basically, with hidden cameras and got the footage they got. Now that the dust has settled, is your farm better for it? And if so, what do you say to those people? What do you say to those groups out there who are doing what they're doing?
3: You know, that's a really complex question, as you know, and I appreciate you asking it because it's something that I've probably asked myself a thousand times. And I have to say yes. For me as an individual, as a person, it was uh, life-changing for me. It made me a, a lot better person, for sure, without a doubt. But more importantly, again, my responsibility is to protect those animals. And it created systems within our farms that I have a high degree of confidence. Now, I can't sit here and promise that someone will not abuse an animal. But what I can promise is that the systems I have in place will detect that immediately. And it will be dealt with immediately. But I also can promise you that there's not a person on our farm that doesn't go today through an amazing training program. And the documentation that you referred to a little while ago, which we did have in place of the employees that were working at that time of the video, the documentation today is so robust compared to that. Yeah. So. Can something happen again? You, you know, We all know people are people, and people will do things for different reasons. But yes, it's made our farm a lot better, and it's an experience that I think has made myself and I believe my family a lot stronger and a lot better and a lot more understanding of, of what it takes to uh, take on a responsibility like the one we had defined that we're taking on and to really do it
0: right. Look. I could talk to you about this for hours because honestly, I think somewhere down the road, somebody's going to write a master thesis on crisis management. And it's not going to involve PR, it's not going to involve focus groups. So I've said this to you focus groups are really great at eliminating terrible ideas and brilliant ideas, <laughs> right? What they leave you with is that squishy crap in the middle, these mealy mouthed apologies, these half hearted attempts at writing the ship. How many CEOs have we seen just fall all over themselves trying to check every single box that just leaves the viewer and the listener going, oh, bullshit. I mean, honestly, you're just shining me on. You didn't do that. And as a result, you've, (laughs) well, you are where you are. So if there's anything else you want to say about it, say it now, because I've got to get some other questions answered. Like, how do you get milk from an almond? And what the hell is that all about? <laughs> very
1: tiny nipples on almonds.
3: I would say we're not there yet, but I'm very proud. Uh, Sue and I, we decided to to kind of create something special that could come out of this for you know a broader audience and ourselves. And that was to try to create with our cameras, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, to be able to detect anything like this. We have video watchers now constantly, every contact place on the farm where there's an employee and a animal is, uh, there's cameras that are watching that. And then there's video watchers who watch those. So you could imagine what that's taking in an operation like ours. But I'm very excited about where we are with the technology, with artificial intelligence, and and it's gonna go beyond that, Mike. Once you have this type of investment in your farm, you can take it beyond animal welfare into nutrition management and other efficiencies that you're looking for in the farm to add on to your automation of where we're headed in the future with technology. So that's been kind of rewarding. We're not there yet. I can't say that I have something that I can roll out totally. Our goal is that we have a phase that should roll out on November 1st of this year. Yeah. In about 20 farms outside of ours. So that's a goal. So sooner or later, we'll meet that goal. But, uh...
2: And what's really interesting, because I think that it kind of goes back a little bit to your one of your questions before, Mike, was you know, when we were talking about um, what do people not know about like, what, what you do on a farm? Who encounters AI in their daily lives, right? And yet here our cows are being watched by AI every day. The amount of science, the amount of technology that occurs in farms throughout the country day after day is astounding. and I think that's one of the things that people who have no connection, you know no generational connection to agriculture are amazed by. And it's one of the funnest things like that we've done is when you take like you take teenage kids to the farm. And they look at, um, you know, besides the AI, we've also got... uh, Robotic dairy. And you need to come back and come see the robotic dairy. So where cows basically are milking themselves. There's no human interaction. So the cows walk up to a machine. They walk into like a little chute. They get a little grain and they just stand there and a machine milks them.
3: A robot milks them.
2: It's like the freaking coolest thing. And... When teenagers see that, when teenagers start to understand, holy crap, there's more than just like throwing seed from your little hip bucket out onto the fields, you know, wow, this could be like, this is really interesting. I mean, I could be an engineer and work in agriculture. So it's one of the most rewarding things that we've had as an experience at Fair Oaks Farms.
0: Dee Hall was a great show, but <laughs> part of the unintended consequence of that and a gajillion other tropes is that you ask the average person to describe the average farmer and it's still Buck Owens sitting out there with a hay seed waiting to clear the South 40 and it's all somehow those tropes are still with us. And it's funny you mention AI, Mike, because I don't know if I ever told you this story, but there was a confusion between me and one of my early producers around my desire <laughs> discovery wanted a show on AI and I, I'm like, great. Cause I got a big idea for AI and they're talking about artificial intelligence and Wait, I'm talking let about me get artificial my intimidation. <laughs> yes. yeah. So now we've come to the point where I have to ask Sue, is it possible that AI is watching as humans conduct AI <laughs> on, on the cows, the AI <laughs> Every day. is watching the AI. Unbelievable! <laughs>
1: it's very meta. We have finally come
0: full <laughs> yeah, circle. Yeah,
2: the whole meta thing, Mike and I kind of crack up about. He's still yet to see Wall-E, the movie. Oh yeah! yeah. I, I keep telling him if we're going there. That's that's exactly where we're
0: going. If you got robots milking cows, look. <laughs> I don't know what the next show is going to be. Dirty Jobs is back. I'd love to come back, really, just to see up close, you know, and really close the circle once and for all on all of that. It sounds pretty great. But fundamentally, you're in the milk business. I mean, it's a dairy, you got an ice cream thing, you got exhibits, you got all, all that other stuff, but it comes down to milk. What did you do to make Fair Life Milk so damn tasty? Less sugar, more protein. Why does it taste better than the other stuff? What did you do? You know, what did you do, Mike?
2: What did you do?
0: So, oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you answer, put it through this filter. Sue sent some notes to Chuck. I'm not sure why. I guess she thought we might need talking points. (laughs) And I'm just looking through these now. And somewhere buried toward the bottom, she wrote, Mike McCluskey has been an incredible pain in the ass to the dairy industry, (laughs) as visionaries typically are, to raise the bar. So whatever you did to make milk taste better, how did it annoy everybody else in your world?
3: It really goes back to I've been a milk believer since I have any memory at all. Milk was always my favorite drink growing up. Back then, in the late 50s, early 60s, you got milk delivered to your home every single day. And that milk was milk that night, delivered in a glass bottle. You drank it that day. And the next morning, you had a fresh new bottle sitting there. So milk didn't have a chance to spoil whatsoever. So its desirability factor of flavor was amazing when we were kids. And over time, we went to the gallon jug, which was a kind of, you know, a move that allows light. And now we went to better pasteurization, longer shelf life that allowed that milk to sit there under light, causing oxidation, changing its flavor, allowing some of the natural bacteria, no, not pathogenic, but there's natural bacteria in milk, allowing it to slowly cause some flavor changes within the milk. And these combination of things is what I designated back in my younger age as a dairy farmer, as a dairy veterinarian, is a desirability factor that no one hears of. And, and to me, the desirability factor is a connection between your taste buds and your physiology of your, of your intestines that is sending a message subliminally to you. And you know it's not something that you drank and said, ah, I didn't like this, but it's something that you drank that reached a lower level in the desirability level, which is subliminal and moving then into a decision making process of just a reaction, open your refrigerator and you see if you don't grab that milk like we did when we were kids. Because we allowed through the changing times to not keep that incredible wholesomeness, freshness of milk that came in a 24 hour period because there was no time, that milk had just been made by that cow and there was no time for anything to cause any damage to it because that takes several days to occur. So that was my first challenge that I really was focused on, needed to understand how could I bring back that flavor while still dealing with the longer shelf life and everything. So the other side that occurred to me in the early 90s, you know, I do have studies in nutrition through my veterinarian practice. I've always enjoyed nutrition and I enjoy human nutrition very much as well. So I became a big student of this whole revolution of sugars and and eliminating (laughs) fats and increasing sugars in the 90s and what that was doing to all of us and and the importance of protein that we totally overlooked in that whole process in the 90s so i became a big believer in protein a big believer in low sugar a big believer that fats were good so when i looked at nutrition in general what better nutrition than milk when every mammal that's born creates every cell in their body from only one thing for whatever time period and in, in human be it a year or two they don't consume anything else but milk and every cell develops from that so how do I want to replenish my cells later on in life as they're you know we're constantly replenishing our cells I want to use the same vitamin mineral combination and naturally in milk other many micro compounds that are in milk that have you know tremendous positive influence and i want to use that protein because the amino acid profile of that protein is just an amazing amino acid profile that has been specifically made for mammals but at the same time milk had lactose in it which lactose is the sugar of milk and you know it's not high high but there's more lactose and protein so i wanted to figure out how do i reduce the lactose and then there's an issue of lactose intolerance for a lot of people and lactose intolerance is not a light switch. It's not either you have it or you don't, there could be different levels and progression of that. So with that philosophy as well, I, then I tried to put all that together and say, okay, how do I change milk and meet all of these different attributes that I want to meet? Obviously, I needed a better type of packaging that would not allow any degradation because of oxidation and light. I needed to have the highest quality of milk at the farm level that you can possibly do. And you experience that with us of all the work we do to have very high quality, like many dairy farmers do in this country today. So very focused on quality to start out with. And then I had been exposed to membrane filtration in the 80s, in the late 80s, because of some well water issues that I had. And I got an education, I educated myself really well in in membranes back then. And it just happened to be that through those studies, I learned the different molecular sizes of these membranes and that there was a membrane that fit in between every one of these ingredients. So the, the water in milk, the mineral vitamin in milk, the lactose in milk, the protein in milk, and the fat in milk. And I went from smaller molecular size to larger on that description there. And there was a membrane that fits in between each one. So I thought, haha, if I can separate out the lactose, if I can separate out the protein, keep the vitamins and minerals and concentrate them up, concentrate the protein up, reduce the lactose, I'm in good shape. But I'm gonna take a little bit of the sweetness away from milk, which is that great flavor. So what do I do? Well, it happens to be that lactose, although the same amount of carbons as fructose or glucose or galactose sugar, has only 25% of the sweetness. (laughs) So, if I could convert the lactose into glucose and galactose because it's just a bond that keeps them there. If I could break that bond and convert that with a lot less lactose, I could bring back all the sweetness. So I reduced the lactose by about 70% and then I added the lactase enzyme and what I left there I turned into glucose and that brings back the full sweetness of milk. While at the same time, we doubled the amount of protein and vitamins and minerals and calcium, magnesium, everything. So we were able to keep the sweetness, improve the body, because protein brings a lot of body. So your mouthfeel is just fantastic. Protein Mm -hmm. has a great flavor in milk. So it increases the flavor even more. And I've always loved whole milk. We sell 2% in skim, as you know, but fats are good for you. There is just no doubt. I mean, every year we're learning what I believed back in the 90s, you know, that the mistake was trying to eliminate good fats and milk. Fat is a good fat. So by having that full combination and protecting the product in the right type of packaging and starting with the highest quality of milk by making sure that our cows were in environments that were very safe to them and that they were extremely clean and milked in a very clean process, we ended up with Fair Life Milk.
1: And that ain't something you're going to hear
0: on Hee Haw. No, that ain't (laughs) Buck Owens. That ain't Roy Clark. There's a (laughs) lot of science going on. Actually, the thing I really take from it, Mike, two things. First of all, whatever, your milk tastes better than any milk I've ever had. (laughs) And two, have I been saying intestines wrong my whole life?
1: (laughs) Intestines?
2: Intestines. Is it intestines? No. No, no, intestines good. That's his, Sue that's, says that
3: it, this is my husband. He has two second languages. That's my Spanish coming through.
0: <laughs> I like it. Intestines. It makes it all sound rather continental, you know. <laughs> Sue, what the hell? Almond milk. Why does my partner, Mary, always order almond milk now? I tell her that's...
2: Oh, what's the matter with that girl? Look, I
0: told you. She's not... I mean, she's very, very, very smart. But when it comes to food, I, I tell her, you can't get milk out of an almond. But she's like, no, I'm not so sure about that. I'm like, I'm sure. Yeah. So anyway, she's in Greece right now. But if she were here, I'm sure she would appreciate a cogent explanation. Are we seeing all these bizarre milk alternatives because, to Mike's point, the milk that we remembered... Is not so easy to get anymore, and we're concerned about fat, maybe unjustifiably so. And is it just a bunch of marketing hoo ha?
2: You know, first of all, I agree with you about Mary. She's a brilliant lady. I'm going to have to have a sit down with her and kind of go through yeah. all of this.
0: Please. Um, an intervention, an almond intervention. <laughs> yes. That's what oh does. my God, it's another AI.
2: <laughs> one more, one more. And we can do that. While a cow's being AI'd while the yes. AI is
0: watching. And we can watch it. This will all be all at great. one time.
2: All at and one Coleman
0: time. intervention.
2: <laughs> That's a t-shirt if I ever heard <laughs> one. I think there's a lot of a lot of things at work, which, you know, even as Mike was explaining about the reinvention of milk and how we just were so dogged in our attempts at trying to bring good milk back, bring the best of milk back. Yeah. Because there were attempts starting from the 80s, right, about, well, just look at the food pyramid, the old food pyramid that we used to have. I mean, my Lord, you know, what a disaster that created for our country today.
0: Well, it was perfect. It was just upside down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, eat butter, people. So there was that, right? So don't drink whole fat milk. You can only drink skim milk. Who the hell likes to drink skim milk? No one. Chuck, no one. No. No one likes skim milk, except Fairlife skim milk, because of the amount of protein in there. It actually, like Mike was talking about that mouthfeel, Fairlife skim milk is pretty good, but I still won't drink it. Just, no. So, but what's
1: the point if the fat is good for you, you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. It is.
2: That's why that whole food pyramid is now, you know, now it's a plate. It's not a pyramid. We've moved to the plate concept, and hopefully we will evolve to just to something else. I don't know, glass. a glass. parallelogram, a rhombus. <laughs>
1: Trapezoid, I'm always fond of those.
2: So it left, the fact that milk just was oxidizing fast, the fact that milk just did not taste like it used to taste when we were kids and got delivered milk fresh from the farm from last night to your doorstep, The fact that there was this whole, you know, anti-animal protein crusade going on. You know, the fact that there's a lot of money thrown (laughs) behind alternative milks being thrown behind alternative meats. There's a lot of people trying to get rich by that.
3: And add on the environmental side. I hope we get a chance to talk
2: about it. Yeah, the whole fallacy of, you know, that it's just not sustainable and blah, blah, blah. All of those things... Pushed people into thinking, okay, by drinking almond milk, I'm doing better for my body, I'm doing better for the planet. Well,
3: none of us Yeah,
2: wake up, I'm sorry, but you're not. The worst thing is, you know, when you see, hey, you're an adult, make your own choices, we feel like there's a potential of happening is that we're going to see a generation of kids being raised without the amount of calcium that they need, without mm-hmm. that protein building blocks for their bodies, that's going to be an issue. Just like the food pyramid issue of the of the 60s and 70s became an issue of obesity in the 90s and 2000s, the same thing I think could potentially happen with children who are not getting the amount of complete proteins that they need to be able to grow to be healthy adults. I mean, just think about, real quick, the children in the world today who live in poverty levels, what are they not getting? They're not getting nutrition. What's happening to those kids that's just a, a crying shame and just a sin is that those kids are not able to grow up to their potential. You look at the amount of stunting that happens in a lot of the third world countries today and... It's all because of nutrition. And here's something that's so readily available that a family in Ethiopia can have a goat, can have a cow, and to be able to feed their children and maybe sell enough milk to bring some income into their family. There's a whole elitist attitude that we have in our country that we think we know we're the best. What we think is the best for the world. Well, go have a conversation with A farmer in Africa who could have crops if he used GMO seeds. Go talk Mm -hmm. to a family in India who are dependent upon their livestock. To me, that's like the bigger overall argument that we need to have in this country about bashing animal proteins. Because it's so relevant to the rest of the world. It's so relevant to how we evolved as humans to where we are Mm -hmm. today that how can we do a 180- today when that's the way civilization evolved.
0: Mike, people have written books. There's so many books out there about food, about nutrition, about the environment. Five authors come to mind right now. I'm not going to mention any of them, but I'm sure you're familiar with them. I'd like to hear from you guys in no particular order, but Norman Borloff saved, what, a billion lives? Billion lives billion lives with GMOs. If you don't know who Norman Borlaug is, Google him. Nobody has saved more lives ever Never. than the guy who created the thing that is now basically public enemy number one <laughs> in many circles around food production, around modern agriculture. So if you would, things like free range, things like organic, talk a little bit about the words we always see on the packages that sell stuff and whether or not there's any actual utility in that and whether or not the climate or the environment are actually benefiting in some way.
3: Let's take organic, for example, and it's a known fact that nutrition of organic milk, if I can just stick with milk for this example, the nutrition of organic milk and the nutrition of what let's call it conventional milk, there's absolutely no difference. I mean, this is a known scientific fact no one can dispute. And we're involved in organic dairies because we have people that we sell a lot of milk to large chains of supermarket that have asked us because they trust us if we would do their organic milk as well, because they have Mm -hmm. a clientele that does organic. And so we have two comparisons side by side. And resource wise, Mike, it takes twice as much resource to produce the same product. So if you put the world today, we have a serious problem to be able to meet these growing needs over the next 30 years. And we could be at a tremendous deficit under the best practices that we know we may be under a deficit. If we were to say that we're gonna go to organic on everything, we need to go find another planet to be able to produce that type of food, which, you know, is just not going to happen. So if someone wants to eat organic, you know, again, I'm I'm just like I said, I don't have a problem with a vegan diet. But don't tell me that the convention was wrong just because you believe in organic. That is not true. Absolutely not true
0: at all. And Mike, if I may, don't lecture farmers who... Well, in your case, I think your entire fleet of trucks at this point.
1: Yeah, this is what I want to hear about. I mean,
0: last time I talked to you seriously about this, it was over a decade ago, and you were this close to converting all of your trucks to the point where they could run on cow crap. That's conservation. (laughs) That's- Environmentalism. Real environmentalism. Where are you in that process? And yeah-
3: so that was a very successful process. You know, We started that in 2012. We actually partnered with Cummings Engines to create these engines. There was only a 9-liter natural gas engine, and uh, we needed a 12-liter to carry an 80,000-pound load of milk. All of our milk leaves our farms on tanker loads that are 6,000 gallons. So the total weight truck and milk is about 80,000. So you need a 12-liter to 14-liter engine. And we created those engines in a partnership with them. But we created it not with just regular natural gas, we created it with renewable natural gas. So all of our manure goes into digesters and uh, we collect that biogas that is produced in a digester. So that's an anaerobic situation where the methogenic bacteria consume whatever starches and hemicellulose that's left in the manure and convert it into methane over a very fast period instead of being outside in our pits like we used to do. And that methane slowly would move up to atmosphere. And you know that's one of the potent greenhouse gases, methane. So instead of allowing that to happen, we created digesters. Initially, we just flared that so it wouldn't go to atmosphere and you destroyed the methane that way. And then we looked for ways to better use that. We went to gensets, so we produced electricity for our farm with that and we used the biogas, could burn in these special engines, and they would run a generator that would create electricity for the farm. And then we moved into the idea of these trucks, and uh, and we were able to create the trucks. Uh, 42 trucks took all of our milk to market. 100% of our milk went to market with this gas. <laughs> but we had to also figure out a technology to be able to take this biogas at 60% methane and convert it to 99% methane, which is what natural gas is when it comes out of, out of a well. And uh, we brought in the technology. We were the first to do it in the United States as well. We brought in that technology from New Zealand and it was very successful. And the trucks were a very successful venture as well. So we had 42 trucks, put over a million miles on each of those trucks very successfully. So for many, many, many years, we have been doing that. Today, we are now selling that gas into a, what's called the low carbon fuel standards. All of it ends up in trucks, but not necessarily in our trucks only. So it goes beyond that now. So we've grown that quite a bit. And that's a California project. But right now there's legislation in about...
2: Thank you, California.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Don't mention it. (laughs) There's legislation about nine other states that also are moving that route to be able to use these renewable natural gases. And they're running these type of engines that we developed here at Fair Oaks on all these trucks. So... You know it's a really cool story because it went beyond fair oaks and now there's thousands of these trucks running up and down the road that it can carry these large loads so that was uh, a great environmental success story for us as well but when you look at this whole environmental deal and you look at a carbon footprint of the dairy we've committed as a dairy industry not fair oaks farm but as an entire dairy industry and i'm the chairman of the environmental effort of the u.s dairy industry we've committed to a net zero by 2050 on our farms it's a tremendous commitment i personally believe and this is only mike mccloskey's belief i'm not speaking for the dairy industry i personally believe we can hit this by 2040. and quickly i'll share with you that when you look at a dairy farm and you look at the carbon footprint and as you said always mike i quote you often is that everything in life comes from two places right either we're farming it or we're mining it And when you look at at a life cycle assessment of any product, you find that 70 percent, give or take 10 percent, is at the source. Where did it start? It's either you're producing that carbon footprint at the mines or you're producing that carbon footprint at the farm. So 70 percent of the carbon footprint of a gallon of milk from uh, cradle to grave happens at the farm level. And it divides into four major areas. One is the farming. The farming practices itself produces about a third the other one is manure, which we shared about the digesters, and we eliminate 100% of that one-third. And the other one is this belching. A lot of people say farts. 90% is belching. Only it's 10% is farting. It's the other end, people.
2: It's the other so, end. So. <laughs> Let's get that Believe straight. Me. It's <laughs> not the farting.
3: But it is a belching, and that methane is going to atmosphere, and that's about 30%. And then there's 10% left which is the fourth part of the dairy which is the energy side you would think the energy side would be huge you know the electricity side and the fuels that we use and everything diesel and gasoline and others and the natural gas that some farms would use but it's very small compared to the heavy load that the manure the methane the belching and the farming practice which has nitrous oxide releases which is a very potent greenhouse gas as well you know there's very little co2 a lot of methane and some nitrous oxide in our farming practices. We have initiatives that we're working on, on every one of these, to take it to net zero and beyond. We will sequester through practices such as no-till and cover crops, never open the ground, and we will be not only eliminating that 30% that comes from farming, but
0: sequestering carbon. Sorry, Mike, how do you never open the ground? What does that mean, no-till?
3: In our normal practices, we go with big old disks into the farm, you know, after every crop and open it up and move the dirt around. And that's a practice that, interestingly enough, the University of Purdue and South Dakota years ago in the late 60s and 70s and continued the work through that, they are the ones that drove the concept of no-till. There was really no reason to be doing all of this. And we in America did not adapt that because, you know, we love our big equipment, we love uh, our fertilizers, we love all this.
2: Any reason to get that big green tractor out there on the field? But I've been, That's been in farms. farms. People love to drive That's tractors. America. Yeah.
3: You know, <laughs> the, the people that, uh, that really adapted it well, for example, is Argentina. I've been in farms one after another, hundreds of thousands of acres. The ground hasn't been open in 30 years, Mike, with continuous crop production. And it's called a no-till practice. And you drill into the ground and you're opening up a very small and you're covering it immediately as you go in there. And you use a combination of crop rotation with cover crops during the winter and the different root structures continue the aeration in the ground. So you're breaking up that way. It's just the proper way of farming. And you bring back the biological life Within soil in a way that is impressive. So you start decreasing your inputs. You drop your fertilizer needs by 30, 40% after four or
0: five years of no till. So. And by the way, Mike, how bad? Because I don't want to understate or overstate it, but, you know, headline news price of gas, price of diesel, I get all that. The price of fertilizer, <laughs> the availability of fertilizer, most people don't quite comprehend the impact that those two things can have on the cost of their food or <laughs> the existence of it. Fertilizer tripled this year for us. Tripled. Jeez.
3: So, you know, impressive. And to know that there's practices out there that could, over time, you start no-till, it doesn't happen the first year or the third. It's a process. You've got to build the soil back up. So at times you may be starving it a little bit from the way your older practices. But once you get that biological life back in there in full force, it is amazing what starts happening. And then you decrease. So you got to have that little staying power and be willing to you know put up with that to be able to get over the hump. But the hump is three or four years, and then from then on, the no-till practices. And farmers will tell you, and I'm sure people will hear this and say this immediately, that there's all these different reasons why they can't do it, or I can't do it, or they can't do it. You can do it. And it's a practice that you'll see grow tremendously here in the United States over the next 15 years. And it will sequester carbon, it will eliminate uh, the emissions we're having now, and it will sequester carbon. And carbon's going to have a tremendous value. And this is a source of income for all farmers. You know, it's going to be an added source of income for doing the right things. And the societal benefit of these proper farming practices, it's not only the greenhouse gas emissions, it's the eutrophication of our waterways, right? Creating the black, the dead zones in the Chesapeake Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, and that's done by nitrogen and phosphorus that is in our fertilizers that runs off into our waterways and creates a algae bloom that sucks up all the oxygen causes this hypoxia or takes it all and everything dies and you end up you know and this is a serious serious problem it's as serious as global warming in my opinion and plus it is an additive to global warming because the ocean is a big sucker bringing out CO2 out of the atmosphere as you have a dead zone that's not occurring so it even affects us that way so these practices will reduce that in an amazing way you know talking about fertilizers uh, another technology that Fair Oaks Farm has been intimately involved in in developing together with a small group that Sue and I are part of, two other owners. It's called a a BarCore. And this product takes our manure coming out of the digester after we've created all this energy and eliminated the methane that was going to atmosphere from the manure. And we create three products, Mike. Potable water, a 90% dry fertilizer. that's not a slop of manure anymore that we can pelletize Mm -hmm. and drill into the land, like we talked about a little while ago for the no-till, and aqueous ammonia, which is a substitute to anhydrous, which is an ammonia fertilizer produced from natural gas. So you can imagine the impact that has. So now for the first time, and ammonia has been going to atmosphere since the dinosaurs. And forming particle matter, they call them PM25, PM5, PM10, which weigh more than atmosphere. And then they fall back down to the ground, end up in our waterways. And that's part of the eutrophication I just talked about. A big, big part of the eutrophication is that. So
0: now we can capture- Sorry, Mike. Uh-huh. Eutrophication is the term. And in your estimation, it's a problem- on par with global warming. You
3: know, I'll get a lot of pushback on that. But, you know, it kills aquatic life. It kills water. I mean, it kills the ocean. So absolutely, I, I put it, both global warming and it, we have to attack them both in a serious, serious way. It's a, you know, a problem that, that if we get serious about it, it's easily attacked as well. But in the case of this VARCOR technology, we take the manure coming out of the digester, potable water. 90% of what's coming out, or 95.5% of what's coming out is water, and you've seen it. We yep. end up with potable water, we end up with a dry 90% fertilizer dirt that has no pathogens in it, no seeds, because we've done that through evaporation to be able to get the water out. So we have a sterile, great fertilizer with its a 333 nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium fertilizer with an incredible micronutrient and aqueous ammonia that substitutes for anhydrous as I was saying. And that's, they're all natural fertilizers and they have never been available before. And this is new technology that we've been able to do here at Fair Oaks and several other dairies now. And we're rolling this out as we speak. It's going to be revolutionary in the pig industry and in the dairy industry and in the beef industry to be able to really attack all these problems. So. You know, we haven't even got into the technologies that we're developing now to decrease belching in these cows. There, we have uh, products called 3NOP or Beauvair that reduces the belching by no less than 30% and on the average research, it's 50. And it's a matter how you combine it in the feed, and I believe we'll increase above 50 here over the next couple of years. It's not approved by FDA yet, but it's approved in Europe, it's approved in South America, it's approved in New Zealand. It's just a matter of time we're working with FDA. They just have some antiquated pathways. You need to modernize those and we're working very well with them. And with the USDA and the administration, everyone is supporting to relook at how do we accelerate the process? because it decreases tremendously. But other products like red algae, I don't know if you've read about that or seen that. There's a lot of truth to it. The science is behind, I mean seaweed, not algae. The science is a little bit behind. They kind of make more out of it than where exactly it's at. It is real science and it's being developed and that will decrease as well. So the combination of some of these feed additives in the next four or five years, I believe we'll see somewhere between a 60 to a 70% decrease in that belching as well. So when you start adding all these things up, it's not hard to get to net zero. And that's why you know I'm very comfortable that even those who attack agriculture because environmentally we're not correct, all the contrary, we're a solution through sequestration of carbon through our farming practices that never existed before. We're a solution to the problem, not the problem.
0: Well, then, with that in mind... You know, I've got to tell you, there are farmers who listen to this who are probably super interested in following your lead, but really don't know how to. So what do they do? How can they get into no-till? How can they get into these kinds of sequestration? Where do they go? Right. Look, you're, <laughs> as your wife says here, Mike McCluskey has been an incredible pain in the ass to the dairy industry. <laughs> and part of that, <laughs> when you raise the bar right? this high, Right. Once you know, once you know there's a better way, then what do you do about it? That's the kind of pain in the ass you are. You show people, look, you can do this, but you're not going to create the kind of engine we discussed earlier without picking up the phone. How many conversations did you have with Cummins before you finally got to the place? How many rocks have you pushed up the hill? You've been doing this for every time I talk to you. You're just back from China. You're just back from Argentina. You're just back from Africa. You're flying around the world. You're talking about all of this science, all of these advancements. And right here in this country, we still have, I think, a pretty big chunk of the population growing our food who aren't where you are. So how do they get there? You know, our
3: grant Latin universities are still the best institutions in agriculture in the world, without a doubt. They're, unfortunately, they're, they've been strapped for cash. It's not like in the 80s and the 70s where we had probably the best extension system that you could dream of. I mean, it was phenomenal, right? But the knowledge is still there and we as farmers need to reach out to them. And do a better effort because unfortunately like i just said the extension isn't what it used to be but it it still does a great job with the limited resources unfortunately that these universities have today but your industries so the dairy industry the beef industry that we have great institutions within our industry that represent this for us and we just got to join in to in our case it's dmi the beef industry has three great organizations that do the same so the poultry industry is the same. So within your own organizations, that's where I would start looking, you know, the corn growers, the soybean. I mean, these guys have tremendous educational programs on all of this. So, yeah. So between those two areas, the information is sitting there waiting for farmers to be able to access.
2: But I would also say that, you know, it kind of goes back to this whole concept, the hee-haw concept, the the kind of like the anti agriculture, anti-farmer sentiment that we kind of have in this country. And the more exposure that we can give to kids who are in that period of life where they're kind of trying to think about, all right, where do I... Either I have skills, where do I go? Or I'm about to enter some higher level of education, where do I go? This industry is just... Incredibly ripe for the picking, and that's what we need.
3: It is, it's that, that's so true.
2: That's uh, it's
3: so exciting what we're going to be doing in the future. Michael. And
2: anyone who cares about climate change, anyone who has uh, about our waters, but wants to is concerned about, about you know, how do we ensure that everybody on this planet can maximize their potential through nutrition? Like, there's a job for you, man. That's where. You know, whether you're going to go to a welding school, whether you're going to go to an engineering school, whether you're going to be, you know, a research scientist, agriculture is, it's kind of interesting because we've (laughs) been the basis of evolution, but it's also the next great frontier.
3: You know, our leading partners in the Cedron technology, which is the people that I went to, they're aerospace engineers, and they're having more fun with their introduction into agriculture, they just can't believe And these are companies that have 250 engineers that, you know, and 20 of those are dedicated to this technology on agriculture. They just can't get enough of it. They're fascinated with where it's headed.
0: Yeah, that's why I wanted you guys on. Fundamentally, the stigmas and stereotypes and myths and misperceptions that surround your industry are manifold. And there's no way anybody could have listened to the last hour and a half of this conversation oh, God. and kidding? concluded, yeah, hour and a half. time flies with me, Sue. I've been telling you that for years.
2: There's just no a way. A little Sambuca helps, too.
0: A little Mike. Sambuca wouldn't yeah. hurt, by <laughs> the way. It kind of tempers this,
2: it a little bit.
0: <laughs> Sue and I and Mike all met one evening after shooting on their farm. We wound up in a hot tub <laughs> out back, and somebody brought a bottle of black Sambuca. Somebody. And Sue, armed with these giant brandy snifters, poured some in and pushed it across the surface of the hot tub, Chuck. And hmm. the waves created by the jets ever so gently coaxed the Sambuca toward my crew and I, cooling it on its journey, or maybe heating it. No, it was I don't warming really it up. But... That's, that's what I would yeah. think, yeah. Yeah, it was warming it up. It was a tepid jacuzzi, as I recall. Anyway, the Black Sambuca was really, really good. And just the thing to wash down a couple of bottles of uh, Opus One, which was also on hand, as I recall. Yes, it was. So sorry to derail it, but this was your point, Sue. We just got like five hours of science distilled real quick. I know there's no way we can cover it all, but the headline is, I'm just going to repeat it. Anybody interested in the health of the planet, the health of our water systems, the future of nutrition, and the future of the species, this is the industry to be in. And it's evolving so fast. And I hope you both know I'm at your disposal. Yeah, I'll be back later and we'll have cameras. Hey, maybe some group will sneak in with cameras and film some of this amazing no-till technology, right? But if that doesn't happen, I'll be back with some show at some point to try and shine a light on this. But look, if I can help specifically around this whole cow belching thing, you know, I'm standing by. Chuck does some great VO2 if, you know, if I'm uh, priced out of the market at this point. I'm I'm a lot cheaper. That's for (laughs) sure. Chuck's a lot cheaper.
1: But look, we both love
0: cows. Cheap is good, Chuck.
2: I believe in cheap.
1: Very good. Very good. Frugal. (laughs) I like to consider myself frugal. Parsimonious. (laughs) There
0: you go. But look, is there anything you guys didn't say that you want to before I officially thank you and let you get on with Feeding a Hungry Nation?
3: I just think it's been a great conversation because we hit the care for our animals, the amazing environmental quest that we're on, that net zero is a reality and beyond with eutrophication and others. You know, the nutrition we hit very well. I think the impact that farming has, uh, and dairy is probably one of the bigger ones, in rural America is incredibly important. We didn't touch on that. I just think that rural America is such a backbone of this country, always has been. And uh, And will be and will continue to be. Right. And farming is a driving force behind that. So, you know, that
0: demographics don't lie. People aren't flocking from the heartland to run into the cities. That's not happening. You know, I'm not a futurist, but when I look at the technology that allows us to have this conversation right now, and when I look at the way people are working more and more from home, suddenly you don't have to be in the big city. To land the big job no i read somewhere sue the other day i think kansas city missouri was just rated one of the greatest places to live and work because most of the people moving there aren't working there they're just living mm-hmm. there right yeah i think there's going to be an enormous reversion to some kind of mean and i think that mean is going to involve growing food in a more responsible way and doing it in parts of the country that some of our uh, fearless leaders have been busy flying over.
2: It's nice to live in a place where you can look out your back door and and see for a long ways. It's a good feeling. Uh, and, and Indiana is just on fire right now. It's so cool to see because we're a state that's... Uh, As invested in agriculture as any agricultural state, but also we've embraced the whole tech sector as well. It's a really such a cool balance and an awesome, really one of those leading states now in the nation. But Mike, just to put a final cap on things, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for always being a friend. You know, your Loyalty to Fair Oaks Farms, to the McCloskey family is so appreciated and heartfelt. You know, we've had some awesome times with you. You've been so generous and always talking about, you know, the McCloskey household as being one of your favorite experiences of your dirty jobs career. I have no doubt that's because of the copious amounts of Opus One and Silver Oaks
0: <laughs> and didn't hurt. Black Sambuca hurt.
2: and Hot Didn't tons.
0: hurt. Didn't
2: hurt. <laughs> you know, it's just a good thing there wasn't reality TV around during those days. <laughs> we,
0: hey, there was a show that we didn't shoot. There was a, that sh- happened there was a show we at, didn't at shoot. And
2: Chuck has some wonderful pictures, by the way, that I went through my archives for. <laughs>
1: Yeah, she sent me some good ones, actually. Very good ones. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, but we right. well, can't
2: thank you enough for always being a fan of us and of Fair Oaks Farms. And, and, and
3: farming in general, Mike. I mean, you've just been such an important figure for all of farming.
2: Farming and just all of the industries that are out there now that we're so lacking in employment for. All the trades. All the trades. My goodness.
0: How many could you guys hire right now oh my gosh. in your operation? How many could you hire if they showed up and just said, look, I'm trainable, I'll show up early, I'll stay late, just give me a chance to prosper? How many?
3: I bet we have 40 or 50 openings right now that we wow. can't fill between you know, the visiting center areas and the farm areas and the type of expertise that Sue's mentioning. I mean, it's just really difficult,
0: very difficult. How can you advance? How can you advance within... Your operation specifically Because I'm telling you People are going to call you They're listening right now And they're saying Why not Indiana Why not Fair Oaks I like milk Mike's right There are no nipples On an almond (laughs) What the hell I want to be a part Of getting the cows To stop burping Where do I go (laughs) Would that be Fofarms.com That's that's exactly Where we got to go I think
2: it's probably Info at Fofarms.com And
0: reach out to us Yeah Sue, I got to go. We're not allowed to do this more than an hour and a half. Studies show that doesn't matter how <laughs> interesting we are after 90 minutes. People don't give a damn. But um, look, I have an agenda, and you're welcome is the short answer. But I know where my bread's buttered. I've said it to you before. My addiction for chewing and swallowing is rivaled only by Chucks. And uh, you know, we're grateful. And I know a lot of people are grateful to who you never get to hear from and that that's what my show attempted to uh, to magnify but look what i've stumbled into is a mad scientist mike that's what you are yeah. it's like your hobby your vocation and your avocation are intrinsically connected both are out of control, <laughs> and you are on Mr. Toad's wild ride. I mean, this is a billion-dollar operation. You're in business with the biggest people in the world, and you're doing it in a little corner of Indiana. You're going to change the way people think every time they chew and swallow. That is a hell of a legacy. Your family's amazing as well. And God, I almost forgot, is Gus still around? Oh, the song. Can he come in with his guitar and <laughs> play us out of here?
3: Let me try to catch him. Give me one second. <laughs>
0: Go get yeah. Gus. Gus Chuck is a piece of work, man. Right, he and his good friends job. are so funny. Every time I've been over there, a perfectly reasonable day winds up turning into some kind of bacchanalia with just beautiful people walking around the farm. All right, Gus. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing fine. Nice shirt. Thank you. I appreciate it. And just. Did you tie dye that yourself? I did. Yeah, it was. Uh, it took me about two weeks. <laughs> Probably did it out in the hot tub, right? Yeah, my skivvies turned yellow only for some reason, but the rest worked. <laughs> you had to make it weird, didn't you?
4: <laughs> all right, play um, me a song. This cool. is what
0: you played at the wedding.
4: This is what I played at the wedding. I'm just gonna play the chorus, I think, because the sure. rest I don't think I remember. And I know you're short on time. Can you hold that? Got Thank it. you. We got all Great. the time in the world. Play the first verse. Yeah, okay. We'll do a okay. shortened version. She came up on a dirt road Riding her horse through those fair roads She wears pants now in her home her in the corn grow find a good man she calls her wrong but there's one thing we know she's her daddy's daughter everything he taught her is right there in a white dress with the smile across her face he'll tell you there's no She's so strong with her mama's grace. She's her daddy's daughter. She's her daddy's daughter. So, are you
0: Thank kidding you. me?
2: <laughs> Can you imagine dancing with your dad and your Big Brother is singing that song.
0: Mike, you must have cried like a 10-pound baby girl. (laughs) I'm almost crying now.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I almost remembered all the lyrics. That's terrific. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it.
0: That's really great. There's got to be a recording of that somewhere, right, from start to finish, Sue?
2: There is, yeah. I told him, like, get all your legal shit done, because this will be, like, one of the two or three most popular, like, father-daughter dances.
0: Oh, my God. All right. Well, look, that's totally original, right? I mean, I can play yeah. it. I'm not going to get Yeah, food. go ahead. Okay, great. Yep. Yeah. All right, fine. Consider it done. Uh, all right. Don't hang up because it's got to be fully uploaded. But this was one of my favorite conversations. What's that word? Conversations. conversations. That's it. Yeah. See, after an hour and a half, I learned <laughs> yeah. yeah. my only skill. And which you, all goes you, to look, crap.
2: you had nothing in your coffee cup. And I was like down a third of this freaking Sambuca bottle already.
0: I had plenty. Look, it's nearly empty now. There's just a little bit. There's a little bit there. By the way, have you tried these things? They're called embers. Oh, my God. Again with the embers. (laughs) I figure if I keep doing it, I'm going to (laughs) get a deal with them. There's going to be
1: no need to
2: get a deal. You're giving me advertisement for free. I want to try a bottle of your whiskey bourbon. Noble.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Noble
2: Noble, Tennessee whiskey. whiskey. I'll get
0: you a bottle. It's ninety-five proof. It's Tennessee right. whiskey. It's smooth. It's named after Tasty. my pop. People so seem to cool. like it.
2: Yeah. Oh, Very cool.
0: simple. Good. I'll get a bottle out there. Toot sweet. I'll trade you a bottle of that for some of that fair life again.
2: God, there you good go. Anytime, buddy. I
0: love it. Nice to meet you both. Appreciate it, guys.
2: Chuck, love it you. was. It was thank
3: awesome. Thank you for making me. the love time. To Mike, thank you. Chuck, right, pleasure. Guys.
2: Come visit. Thank you.
0: All right. I'll All right. see you tomorrow.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: when you leave a review which we hope that you'll do tell us who you are, tell us who you are. and before you go oh, oh, won't you leave five